Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. Really good to be here together. I just want to invite you, let's take a moment. Let's just take a deep breath. We've said a lot. We've vocalized a lot this morning. And what we believe is not only churches, is not just about what we do. It's about what God does in us and through us. And so he's meeting us here. So let's just take a deep breath. We embrace both the loudness, the peaks, but also the valleys, the silence, that God is meeting us here in the quiet. Come, Holy Spirit. Come fill this place. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Um, I want you to think about what is the place in the world that you have always wanted to visit? Is that place that you, just, you haven't made it there yet or you can't afford it? What's that place for you? You have it in your mind? Now, imagine with me that you, you won some, I don't know, you signed up for some lottery or you won some all-expenses-paid trip to that place. And, and not only you, but everybody that you love and know can come with you. Like, they're just paying for everything. You know, I don't know, if you have a rich uncle or something has happened here where you can go to Greece or you can go to uh, Southeast Asia or you can go to anywhere else, Bora Bora, yeah. Amen. In the middle of March in New Jersey. Thank you for that visual. Man. And you get to go and you get to bring everybody in your life. Now you get to the airport, your bags are packed, you've got your passport, you are all ready. And has anybody ever had a bad experience at TSA? Yeah, I've had some bad experiences. I try not to be mean to people who are just like, they're just a part of the system. Like they, def- they definitely did not make the rules, right? But it's so frustrating, right? You're just like, look, man, like, you're, you're checking my hands for explosives. Like, I've got three little kids here. Come on, like, let's, let's not uh, get too far here. And so a lot of us have had interesting experiences. But this guy, this TSA officer looks at you and tells you straight-faced, you're all ready to go to your dream destination. And he says to you, hey, you cannot get on this flight. You will not get through security unless you shave your head. And and in fact, everybody with you is going to have to shave their head. And not just that, but we're going to use one of those lasers that makes sure that no hair will ever grow on your head again. And you're like, "This this is hilarious. This is really funny, guys. Like, TSA, you're getting a little bored, you know, government shutdowns and such. Good one. And he's just like, no, no, I'm I'm dead serious. 
And you're sitting there, and so you would have a decision to make at this point, right? <laughs> is the place that you're going worth this? Is it worth you living with this the rest of your life? Now, whatever your experiences at TSA have been, I want to encourage you as a church, as a church family, let's be nice to those people, even when it's hard. They're doing hard work. They're working hard. But for our purposes today, I think many of us have felt this experience as it comes to our own doubts. Let me show you what I mean. We think that maybe there is this amazing destination. We see faithful people. We see people that like have this kind of joy or it seems like that they have this life uh, for God or with God and it seems really attractive. But it just seems like they have to shut off their brain to get there, right? It seems like the, there's, a, there's a significant cost involved with this, like shaving your head, right? And for many of us, we're trying to weigh out, can we, I don't know, can we justify the cost? Is getting there worth just putting all these questions aside? Is getting there worth just uh, turning off my intellect and my mind? Is getting there worth entrusting myself to this thing that I just have no way of being certain of? And so for many of us today, we've been told that faith and doubts are in opposition to one another. And so this morning, I want to look at perhaps a third way, perhaps a different way of looking at our doubts, and perhaps the way that Jesus meets us in our doubts, that you don't necessarily have to get over them to come to Jesus, that he's not the gatekeeper saying, do you have doubts? Well, you can't get here, and until you do this really radical thing, you're not going to pass this threshold. And so we want to look at Jesus and the way that he invites us and the way that he meets us. So we're going to take a brief stop in John chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're not going to spend much time there. And then we're going to land in John chapter 20. So in John chapter 11, Jesus' life, his situation is sort of winding down. And, And the whole thing is escalating. There's this profound amount of tension. You see, Jesus has been disturbing the religious establishment. And they have determined that this guy can no longer go on teaching the way that he is. He can't go on living the way that he is, and they've determined to kill him. And so uh, most of their power is concentrated in a city called Jerusalem, a city that's still here today, a city that for some of you would be a place that you'd want to go if you had the chance. And so Jesus' best interests are served by not going to Jerusalem. If he stays away from there, he'll probably be safe. But in John chapter 11, Jesus gets a word from some friends that one of his dear friends, a man named Lazarus, is sick. And he's been sick for many days, and Jesus has been working these miracles and healing people. And so they say, Jesus, you need to come right now. The situation is dire. And so Jesus, being the kind of friend, and the kind of friend we often miss that he is, Jesus is his beautiful friend, and he he goes, and he goes to to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, but right close to where all of the tension and the turmoil is going to meet him. And Jesus tells his disciples, the group of people that traveled around with him, he invites them to come along with him. And there's a man named Thomas there. And if you read stories, there are no unnecessary details. If you're an editor, you're an author, putting together, compiling a story, you don't just put random stuff in there because it's cute. Everything is sort of serving the narrative of the story. And this man, Thomas, speaks up as Jesus determines to go to Jerusalem. And he says, he says, well, let's go with him. Let's go die with him. When the cards are down, at the moment where Jesus is really giving his life, the disciples will not have this kind of courage. But important for our purposes is that it's Thomas 
is the one who speaks up. And so they go to Bethany. And if you know this story, if you're familiar with the name of Lazarus, and even if you don't have uh, a lot of experience in church, you might be uh, familiar with this name. David Bowie's last album was called Lazarus, right? This guy coming back from the dead, right? And so when Jesus gets to Bethany, he finds Lazarus long dead. But that doesn't stop Jesus, right? Jesus consoles the family and just so powerful and so much gospel in this one little sentence, Jesus weeps himself. He stands at Lazarus' tomb, and he allows the, the moment and the emotions to wash over him. Jesus is not a robot, not a cyborg just floating through the world. He is fully God, fully human. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. And then he stands at the tomb, and he says that this is not over yet. And he calls Lazarus forth. Lazarus, dead for three days, emerges from his tomb. Jesus tells him, take the grave clothes off. This Lazarus that was dead is no longer dead anymore. Jesus has resurrected his life. And who's there watching the whole thing? Well, we know Thomas is. Thomas said, let's go with him. Okay, put that, just keep that in your mind as we move on. We're going to fast forward to John chapter 20. Jesus has given his life on the cross. He has already given of himself fully, and God has raised him to life as the firstborn of the new creation. The new life that Jesus lives, he now extends and he offers to everybody, everybody in this room, everybody in that time. Jesus is extending this life towards all. Now, Jesus, I really appreciate Jesus, and I think this gets underestimated sometimes. He has a profound sense of humor upon his resurrection. He does some funny stuff. Like, there's a lot of fear for the disciples, and we'll we'll look at this a little more in just a moment. But the disciples think that them being associated with Jesus is grounds to get them arrested and maybe suffer the same fate that Jesus suffered, right? And so they're meeting in locked doors. They're meeting as an underground church. Like, they're afraid. They don't really know the implications of what has gone on. And Jesus has a way. He just, like, walks through walls. What's up, guys? How's it going? In Luke's gospel, he just keeps asking. He's like, you guys got anything to eat? Like, I don't know what it is about the work of resurrection that makes you extremely hungry, like you're some preteen boy. But he's just like, hey, y- y'all got some food? Jesus is doing these incredible things, and it- it's incredible to see the way that he announces his presence, his resurrection. He just keeps appearing to his friends. There's something profound in that. But here in John chapter 20, we see, we see the disciples with this, again, meeting behind locked doors. And he appears to a group of his friends, as Jesus did. This is his way of proclaiming that he is alive. This says something to us as the church. How do we, how do we show people that Jesus is alive, that he, who, who he is, is the Lord of all the earth? Well, part of that's being a friend, right? But he appears to this group of people here in John chapter 20, and he manifests himself as the resurrected Lord, that he is alive again, But there's one person missing from this. This group of people that had been following Jesus around, his disciples, we call them here at Ecclesia, his apprentices, these people that had been watching the way that he lives and taking note and being formed and shaped by it. There's one guy missing from this scene. Who is it? It's Thomas. Thomas isn't there. I don't know where he is, but he's not there in this story. And then Thomas, you know, they, he knocks on the door, they unlock the door, they do, undo all the latches. Okay, we know this guy, it's good. 
he comes in, and he says, guys, <laughs> you guys look like you've seen a ghost. Hey, oh, that was, come on. That was like old school pastor humor. Come on. That was horrible. And Thomas walks in, and he's like, guys, like, what is going on? It seems like something has happened since I was gone. What I miss? And do you ever feel this way? You ever feel like God is doing something in everybody else's life but your own? You, do you ever feel like everybody else saw the thing that would, that would make it easy to, to know Jesus, to have faith? Do you ever feel that way? Thomas is sitting there like, I mean, Jesus, you know everything. You couldn't have shown up when I was here. I just went out to get some food for everybody. Jesus is showing that he is alive. He's been crucified. The disciples were afraid. They don't know what happened. And they're, they're meeting together and trying to figure out what to do next. And in that moment, Jesus appears to them and says, peace, he says, hello. And Thomas isn't there. And friends, have you felt that way this morning? Can you just see you're not alone? That Thomas is, is going before you in this way? That Thomas has missed out on some of the things? Maybe God is doing something different. Maybe God is doing something that will bless others as we're going to see. That we're so grateful that we have this story of Thomas. But if you felt that way, if you felt like, I don't know, this faith thing just seems to come easier to everybody else, you're not alone. And how does Thomas respond here in John chapter 20? Well, he doesn't believe them. Thomas says... that didn't happen. It's too good to be true. He says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, you don't have to show your hands, but for how many of you in here, this is you? You're saying, God, there's, there's some easier ways you could show yourself to be real. And unless you do that, I'm sitting over here. I'm sitting on the sidelines because... I have questions. I'm not going to shave my head to get on that plane. And for many of us in here, we're saying, I need to see it for myself. I need to experience this for my own uh, reckoning with my own faith. And it's quite possible that during some of your life that you have been told that your doubts are at odds with what it means to be a faithful person. That you, on account of your doubts, have less faith than those who are certain. That those who can just like, power through it and be like, I, I don't know, I don't get how it all works together, but I just, I just know. And you feel like, hmm, I'm just not sure about that. But friends, today the opposite of faith is not doubt. Today, I want to show you how Jesus works through Thomas's doubts, through, through in order to bless not only Thomas, but us as we stand here and read his story today, not in spite of them. Let's continue here in verse 26. Now, I love this detail that, that John offers in his gospel. It says, a week later, a week. Thomas has been in limbo for a week Now, you have to understand, Thomas has been living his life with these people for the last three years. He has spent every waking moment with the people that have all seen Jesus resurrected. And they're all saying, hey, remember when we saw Jesus resurrected from the grave? And Thomas is like, cool, guys. Inside jokes are great. Love them. Love to be, as Michael Scott says, love inside jokes. Love to be a part of one someday. Thomas, I mean, a week in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem like a lot of time. But can you imagine 
Can you imagine sort of being on the outs of this kind of thing, this kind of secret, this kind of truth that would literally change the world? And Thomas is like, I, I mean, I don't know, I, I guess. It would be an incredibly weird space to be in. But Jesus takes his time. And so let me tell you just the first thing about your doubts here this morning. You don't need all the answers right away, and you probably won't get them. Just plain and simple. Early in my ministry career, like when I started doing this for a living, I was a youth pastor for a little over 10 years, and I worked with students, but God was also doing stuff in me. He was forming me to be the kind of, the kind of disciple that, that I'm becoming. He was forming me to be the kind of pastor that I am becoming. He was forming me to be the kind of husband and father and friend, and I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of things that I was uncertain about, and one of the, one of the biggest questions I had was places like Romans 9, it just seems like God is choosing and picking who, who gets to go to heaven and be with God for eternity and who goes the other way, right? In the parlance of the good place, the bad place. And that, for me, raised a lot of questions. Because if I'm reading the Bible just at face value, I have to be honest, like, man, it seems like it's saying that. And so I would just kind of walk with God in this space of uncertainty, in this tension of unknowing. Because I was committed to the evidence. I'm committed to trying my best, to allowing God to, to help me to live my life by the Scriptures. And so it doesn't do me any good just to find something I don't like and be like, I'm just going to ignore that. I don't want to deal with that. And so for me, personally, I wanted to deal honestly with this, but still, it just didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair. And over the course of time, I began to encounter thinkers and teachers and scholars who were saying, there is another way. Another way that seemed just as faithful to me as this way I was reading the text. That I could trust the Bible, that it is unfailingly pointing, unfailingly pointing me to Jesus, and I didn't have to just dismiss things I didn't like. But this was a process of years. And here what we see in Thomas's life is that even though it's just a week, and that's not a long time in the grand scheme of things, in the context of the story, that's an eternity. And guys, you may have questions. You may have things that you're bringing to God. You may, you may have experiences. You're still trying to figure out, God, why did this happen? And can you see? We're going to see in just a minute how faithful and how gracious Jesus is. That he meets us in that space. That he's not saying, oh, don't worry about that. Oh, forget that. He's saying, you have questions, and I'm a God who relates to you. I'm a God who comes near to you. I'm a God who speaks to you, and I will not just brush over the things that are driving some of the hardest and most painful parts of who you are. Jesus will reveal himself. He is faithful, and he keeps going. So we go on. The text tells us this time, a week later in John chapter 20, that Thomas is with them. And the doors are shut, and Jesus comes in again, and he goes through the wall because he can do that kind of stuff. You know, this is a little aside, but to be able to, to be resurrected, to live that life, there might be a lot of cool things that we can do. You know, my, my, my daughters and my son watch these animated movies right now where just anything is possible, right? People can fly. You can, like, do all this crazy stuff with animals and talk to them and all this awesome stuff. Maybe that's a little picture of heaven, just, just a little free one for you. But it says again that the doors were closed, that there's this undercurrent of fear here. The disciples, again, they know that the same people who arrested Jesus and handed him over to the religious leaders could do the same to them. The atmosphere is incredibly tense. 
They've, some of them have seen Jesus and they just don't know what to do with it all. And they're trying to make sense of this new world while de- dealing with their own fear and uncertainty. Now, doubt often feels this kind of unsettling, right? That you're not sure how you're going to make it through the next day. You're not sure that you can trust God with your life. You can't put things in His hand because you're not sure what's going to happen. And this is the other thing about doubt, guys. We tend to think of doubt as our intellect, especially in a space like this, Princeton, New Jersey, that we have philosophical questions or we have uh, ethical questions or ontological questions. But really what Jesus is addressing is not just our belief as if we could associate or uh, disassociate our mind from our life. He's, He's dealing with our doubts as it pertains to do we trust him? Can we trust Him with our lives? Can we trust Him with our families? Can we trust Him that He is going to keep us safe? And this is what the disciples are dealing with right here. They're sitting in a locked room, and for very good reasons. But the doubt that is filling this room is not just Thomas's doubt. It's the doubt of, Jesus, are you going to keep me safe? Are you going to be here in this space? I think so many of us, we have been in that place. And look at what Jesus does into this unsettling place. He comes and he stands as the solid rock in the midst of these questions and these uncertainties. And he says a word that has such profound and beautiful implications. He says to them, peace. This is the word that Jesus speaks to them. This is the first word of the new world. Peace. God is for you, that I am with you. God's peace in the Bible is the place where God is present. God's peace in the Bible is the place where people love each other as if ordered by God. God's peace in the Bible is the place where justice and holiness are present. And Jesus says to them, peace. You see, our doubts are not just intellectual. We have have mortgages. We have bills to pay. We have things going on with our family. We have, so, some of us have kids that have uh, needs that we're like, God, are you going to take care of them? I mean, I'm here. I'll be here as long as I can be, but, but are you going to be here for them when I'm not? And God, Jesus comes and he stands as the resurrected Lord of everything and he says to them, Peace. I am with you. I am for you. We lock the doors and we try to keep the world out and Jesus comes right through and he says, I'm here. And friends, I hope that you hear that word today, that he, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of the uncertainty about your future, there, there's a lot of sinking sand, a lot of, a lot of things that don't make sense and Jesus is coming and he's saying, I'm the solid rock. You can stand on this ground. Peace as Jesus has promised that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, and that we can take art in him because he has overcome the world. And he has pronounced his peace over his friends. Jesus turns to Thomas, and look, notice how beautiful this is. He says to him immediately, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put them in my side Do not doubt, but believe. Remember from earlier in the passage, remember exactly why Thomas said he wouldn't believe. He said, unless he can put his fingers in the nail holes, unless he could see and experience for himself, he would not believe. And Jesus doesn't belabor the situation. He says peace to his friends, and then he turns to his other friend Thomas, and he says, Thomas, this is what you need here. 
You see, Thomas didn't know it when he stated those things amongst his community. He didn't know when he said, unless I can put my hands in, his, in the holes in his hands, I will not believe. He didn't know it, but he was offering a prayer. He was saying, God, I need this. And Jesus, when he shows up in the room in his timing, he says, Thomas, you asked for this. I'm not going to answer you with something else. I'm not going to give you something completely different. You know, sometimes we actually know what we need. I know there's a lot of talk about, well, you know, you get the thing you need, not the thing you want. Oftentimes those longings, those desires in us are exactly the thing that we need. And Jesus is not saying, okay, you asked for this. Here's a different gift. He's saying, Thomas, here's what you asked for. And I am meeting you in that space. And he says, touch, feel, know. It's an amazing thing. Jesus is asking us to believe in him. is not just us assenting with our brains. It is actually Jesus meeting us in that space and saying, experience with your whole life, with your senses, not just your mind, but to know that Jesus is here and resurrected. And it's here in this space where Jesus interacts with Thomas that I think this story takes on its most profound weight. Really, it's glory. Now, remember Lazarus. What happened to Lazarus? He was raised from the dead, right? We kind of stopped off in that story. Who was there? Thomas. We know Thomas was there from the story. He saw Lazarus come out of the grave. Now, for Thomas, it wasn't exactly beyond the realm of possibility that somebody could be resurrected. He'd seen it before, right? And so when the disciples, before Thomas had seen Jesus for himself, and when they're saying to Thomas, hey, Jesus is alive, it's at least within the realm of possibility that that could have been true, right? I mean, he had seen Jesus raise a guy from the dead. Could he be alive? It was at least plausible, right? Now, many people in our world, in our culture, in America, like if you, if you read the surveys about people that believe in God, I mean, the, the numbers are overwhelming. We're talking 65, 70%, depending on which survey you read. Most people believe that the, the idea of a God is at least within the realm of possibility. And just like Thomas, they have a notion that Jesus can do these amazing things. They have a notion that, that Jesus could resurrect somebody. In our culture, they have a notion that God could exist. And yet, we look at our world and it seems, I don't know, it doesn't seem like people are living like God exists. So where is the disconnect here? Well, I think we can know a thing without really knowing it, right? William Stafford, the American poet, says, I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. I'll read that again. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. You see, Thomas lived in a world where resurrection was possible, but it wasn't until, until he experienced it for himself that it became real to him. Now you see, Ecclesia, that Jesus' faith, this Jesus' way that he's inviting us into is not simply knowing some facts. Not simply declaring with our mouths like we did in that song, I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Believing in Jesus is about sight and sound. It's about touch. 
It's about drawing near to Him as Thomas does. It's about putting our hands in His nail-scarred hands. It's knowing in the fullest sense of the word, experiential knowledge. And what we find is that in the midst of our doubts, the truth is not something we need to wrap our minds around. But the truth embraces us. The truth is embracing us, and it embraces us with nail-scarred hands. If you read the wider story of John's gospel, John is routinely critical of people who believe because of miracles. Jesus does some incredible things. In John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people, and they're they're following him around. They're like, hey, are you going to do the bread thing again today? Because that's a good life. Like, if you're just going to keep producing bread, this is an agricultural uh, group of people, right? Like, they work hard for their food. And if Jesus is just making it appear, they're into that. I'm into that, right? In John chapter 11, as we saw, Jesus raises a guy from the dead. And he says, in John's gospel, he says, even if you see somebody raised from the dead, you will not believe. And so, friends, the question I have for you today is, what do you think God would have to do for you to be like, I totally believe this, 100%. Because what we see throughout the scriptures is that some sort of one-off miracle experience with God does not sustain us. It does not make us into faithful people. What Jesus is inviting Thomas into is not to say, see, here is irrefutable proof that Jesus is alive. There's something different going on here. Thomas, as he puts His hands in the nail holes in Jesus' hands doesn't move from being a non-believer to being a believer. Rather, he knows one profound truth that puts all of his doubts, all of his uncertainties on solid ground. He knows that Jesus' love is for him. You see, as Thomas touches the nails in Jesus' hands, he's not like, oh, good, I I have logical proof now. He understands that Jesus did this not just for the world, not just that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, but that God so loved Thomas, that He would go through all this, that God so loves you that He would go through every bit of this. Isaiah 49 says that He has written your name on His palms. He has inscribed you on His hands. Friends, it is one thing to believe that God loves everyone. It is one thing, another thing to believe that God loves you. And this is what Thomas experiences in this moment. Thomas, with all his doubts, with all his uncertainties, knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this moment, this crucified Jesus that is now resurrected, stands before him. says, Thomas, I love you. I am for you. Now, Ecclesia, I love Jesus. As best I can, I love him. I'm grateful. I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by the implications of this Jesus story. And that's one of the reasons we're starting this church, is just to tell people that story. Just to get out of the way and say, as we tell this story, as we live this story, that Jesus does amazing things, resurrection-type work. And I have spent my whole career trying to tell that story, trying to live for Jesus, trying to do this thing the best that I can. I spent time in grad school studying the Bible. In my spare time, I like to read theology. I like to read about Jesus. My whole life is sort of wrapped up in this thing. I talk about it with my friends. I meet people. I tell them I'm a pastor. They say, that's weird. I say, well, 
you're right. But friends, even though I'm so sort of immersed in this thing, I have my doubts. Things like children's oncology wards, indiscriminate bombing of whole towns, and random natural catastrophes make me ask questions. Things like my own life. Things like the areas I see hypocrisy, the areas where I just know I, I want more, but I can't seem to, to grasp it. Those kinds of places, and I'm, I'm filled with doubt. I'm riddled with it. <laughs> but my own doubts, just like those of Thomas, fall quiet in the face of this kind of love. You see, Jesus invites me, not just Thomas, and he invites you to touch and to see to, to, to ask for Jesus, God, I, this is the thing I need. This is the, the barrier that's holding me back from really immersing my life in yours. He's saying, put your hands here. And Jesus doesn't ignore my doubts. He doesn't minimize them. But he gives them firm ground to stand on. You see, and that's what's happening here. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, hey, everything, it, you can never have any uncertainty or unbelief again. What he's saying to us is, keep asking the questions, but ask them on the firm foundation of my unfailing love for you. This is the ground upon which I stand, and even when I behave in ways that are inconsistent with what I say I believe and what I strive towards, I am still embraced by that one unrelenting truth, that Jesus died for me, that he invites me to draw near, that he comes to me in the midst of my doubts saying, peace, and he extends his crucified and resurrected hands to me and says, I have written your name on my palm. I know you and I love you. The author George MacDonald writes, I'm going to read just a little bit of an extended paragraph for you here as we wrap up here this morning. He writes, when God is seated at the very fireside of our hearts, then there is no more doubt. I say, friends, it is a good thing that you should have doubt until you see that nothing less than God being near to you will do. And until you come to desire that and to turn your judgments, your thought and feeling in that direction, oh, friends, I know nothing else in the world worth knowing. I could go on talking to you all the day long about this, but I should weary you. Faith is the trying of things unseen, the putting them to the test, and whatever your doubts or your fears are, try him by obedience, and then you will get help to carry you on. I'll stop there, but friends, this is the life that Jesus is inviting us to, not to shave your head, not to say, hey, there's this awesome thing over here, but you, there's a lot of things you got to, the hoops you got to jump through. He's saying, you have questions. And you know what I love about the Bible? It's not an answer book. It's not saying, oh, you know, turn to, you know, if you want to know about mathematics, turn to Proverbs. That's not the point of it. The thing I love about the Bible not that it, is not that it has all the answers. It does in a way. But that it asks all the questions. And friends, maybe you're like Thomas today. Maybe you're sitting here and you've got a lot of good reasons for not believing. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe the picture that you've received of God is one where doubts, dissent, and questions are unwelcome. Maybe God was just presented in a very boring way to you. 
Whatever your reasons are, can I point you towards this one unflinching truth that Jesus is standing before you, not saying, your doubts are stupid, stop asking questions. He's saying to you, put your hands here. Touch and see. Know with your hands. Know with your experiences. Know with your mind, with your emotions, with your soul that He has written your name on the hands of His palm. Let's pray. Merciful and beautiful Jesus, Lord, You meet us in astounding ways, God. You come to us in all sorts of situations, God, where we would, we would seek to have our own way. And so, God, would You just draw near to us? God, would You make it known that You're not holding over us these stipulations that we have to check all these boxes in order to come near to You? But God, will we see that You don't wait for us? God, You don't wait for us to have it all figured out, God. Whether that be our doubts intellectually, whether that be our doubts about who You are and Your goodness, God, You don't wait. You come right through the locked doors of our hearts and You say, peace. So God, as You meet us here this morning, Lord, would we see that You our merciful, gracious God, that in Your hands are all the treasures of wisdom, God, all the mysteries of the earth. Lord, the vastness of the universe You hold in Your hands, and yet You want our hearts, God. So God, will we see how You're meeting us here this morning? Lord Jesus, we love You. We pray all these things in Your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.